You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Joshua 24. We'll be in the verses that uh, Taryn just read for us. Uh, If you're new, my name's Jamin. Good morning. If you are watching online, welcome. Uh, Wherever you are and however long you've been doing that. To the 170 students that were at Focus this weekend, welcome. We are so glad, yeah. So glad that you are here. I know you're really tired, but you're only allowed to fall asleep in the nine o'clock service, so stay awake. Joshua 24, 14, 14 and 15, we are continuing our series on wisdom, and we're going to ask a question again this morning that we began asking and answering last week. And the question is this, what kind of home did you grow up in? Uh, did you grow up in a wise home? This is very much, friends, I, I did that thing again that I try not to do, but this is very much a part two sermon, which means last week was part one. And so there's explanation and context that we offered last week that I won't have the space to offer again. But if we just reach back, the question we're asking is, what kind of home did you grow up in? Did you grow up in a wise home? And the reason we're asking that question is because of what we see in the book of Proverbs as being God's design for where we were supposed to, at least, first learn wisdom. In Proverbs, you see a home where children are loved and led by wise parents over 20-something times You hear the phrase, my son, in the book of Proverbs. You have dozens of speeches from either a mom or a dad to their children. You get verses like Proverbs 1.8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. It calls to mind a home. It offers the picture of a home where mom and dad love their kids. And one of the ways they love their kids is they lead their kids towards Wisdom. If you took all of the wisdom in the book of Proverbs and asked about that wisdom, this question, where was I supposed to hear that? Where was I supposed to first learn that? Where was I supposed to first be shaped to walk in that? The answer, according to Proverbs, is your home, from your parents. Did you? Was that your story? Is that true for you? Did you grow up in a wise home? Uh, The question is relevant because we all have parents. In the next few weeks, we'll talk uh, marriage, and not all of us are married, Uh, After that, we'll talk parenting, and not all of us have kids. But this week and last week, we're asking, how were you raised? And it's relevant for all of us because all of us are children. All of us have or had parents. It's also an important question because the home has such powerful shaping influence on us. God's word says we're supposed to learn wisdom there. And so the wise know that the home has powerful shaping influence on us, regardless of what that looked like. And so the wise will look back with honesty and ask, what kind of home was it? Did I hear wisdom that I need to hold on to? Did I learn foolishness that I need to let go of? So the wise are not two things. These are kind of the boundaries of our conversation. I wish I'd have been more clear about this last week, but thank God for another chance. Um, the boundaries are the wise are not dismissive of their family of origin, and the wise do not believe they are determined by their family of origin. Everything we'll talk about 
walks the path that's in between those two extremes of the spectrum. The wise don't believe they're dismissive of, their wise are not dismissive of their family of origin because when we're dismissive of, what happens is we risk missing ways that we are living according to our family's ways that are not God's ways. And if you remember about wisdom, wisdom is living in God's world, God's way. So I have known people who do evangelism like Jesus, but they do unhealthy emotion like their dad because our family of origin disciples us. That's what, uh, the, the context of the home. It's a disciple-making context. And not all of us were discipled in our homes in the ways of Jesus. And so the wise are not dismissive of that. The wise are curious about how I've been shaped. How's that coming out of my life now? They, they look back on ways that I was helped and ways that I was maybe hurt that need to heal. They look back with gratitude for where there was wisdom. They look back with grief where there was foolishness. And then the wiser, so they're not determined are dismissive of, and then the wise are not determined by. We are not, praise God, the sum total of the foolishness or the wisdom that we were raised in. The most important thing about living well and living wisely is not about the homes we grew up in, but about the hearts we have. And what our hearts most need is Jesus. And what kinds of homes, what kinds of heart change does Jesus bring? over which kinds of homes? Well, all kinds of homes and all kinds of stories and all people. Uh, so, and some people reject Jesus out of all kinds of homes. So some in the room were raised in really broken homes and Jesus saved you. And your life is defined by the family, the spiritual family you belong to now. Some in the room, you raised children in wise homes. And I know we're thinking about this as children, but you're thinking about it as a parent and you raised children in a wise home and those children grew up to not follow Jesus. And it breaks your heart hear me, you can have a grace response to a home filled with brokenness, and you can also have a broken response to a home filled with grace. The thing that matters most is the heart and, and our hearts being changed and shaped by Jesus. And so what we believe as Christians is that we're not determined by the family that has the greatest hold on our life is our spiritual family. We've got an incredible heavenly father who loves us unconditionally. We have a perfect big brother, Jesus, who died in our place. And we have a faithful spiritual family at the church. We sit here together as brothers and sisters. I want to spend one more week here. That was last week. And last week we thought back through the categories of the wise home, the confused home, and the foolish home. If you missed it, it's online. Go listen if you can. This week I want to think through a different lens and ask us to consider what did you learn to fear in your home. If you think back on the family of origin, the home you grew up in, the parents who raised you in certain ways, what did they teach you to fear? What did they teach you to revere? Okay, don't let me down, church. This is not a rhetorical question. What, according to Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom? Yes, great job. You're so spiritual. Great job. Okay, and where, according to Proverbs, were we supposed to begin to learn wisdom? The home said it like 90 seconds ago. That's okay. Uh, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and if the place that we were supposed to begin to learn wisdom is the home, then what did you learn to fear in your home is the question. Like last week, I want to offer some options. These need explanation, but I want to just get them in front of you as early as possible. Did the home fear God? Did the home fear success? Did the home fear safety? Did the home fear acceptance? And really what we're asking is how were all of these things handled in the home? Because every single home handled these in one way or another. We're in Joshua 24. Look at Joshua 24. 
Joshua speaks to the people. They are mostly the children of the generation of Israelites who were rescued from Egypt. So if you know the story of the Bible, uh, they're slaves in Egypt. They, uh, God delivers them from that slavery. They cross through the sea that was uh, spread apart. They get into the wilderness. They stay in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness. And then eventually they make it into the promised land. Where we are in Joshua 24, these are the children of those who were rescued from Egypt, most of them. And Joshua speaks to them. He's about to die. This is one of the last things he does as a, as a minister. And he preaches. And the main point, at least of the verses we're going to read, is fear the Lord. Don't fear what your parents feared. He says in verse 14, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. We're going to take a long pause right here because we need to spend some time on the fear of the Lord uh, the English word fear really only has one connotation and it's dread. It's like to be afraid of harm. And so it's easy to read fear of the Lord and think we're supposed to be scared of God. Yes, he loves us, but he doesn't love us that much. We still need to be a little bit scared of him, right? And that's not true. Uh, so we'll, we'll do some work here. My kids are at that age where they've figured out that I don't know everything. And I used to have them fooled like when they were newborns, but they learned pretty quick that dad knows a lot about a few things, but then knows just a little or nothing at all about everything else. And they've learned that if they ask dad a question and he's taking a long time to respond, it's because he's trying to Google the answer without them <laughs> noticing it. They are homeschool. They go to school two days a week and they homeschool the other two days. And uh, the other day they were doing a homeschool and my daughter Addie needed help with math. And she said, hey dad, can you help? And Asher said, Addie, dad doesn't do math. <laughs> And I felt both offended and understood all at the same time. <laughs> but a while back, one of them asked the question, Dad, why do the planets orbit the sun? And I was ready. I said, because the sun is heavier than all the other planets. The sun has more matter. The sun has more mass to it. And because it's heavier, its gravity keeps the planets revolving around it. Because of its weight, all the planets exist in a gravitational relationship to the weight of the sun. And the sun is so much bigger than all the other planets. In fact, you can fit over a million Earths inside the sun, I told them. I did Google that part. But the sun <laughs> is the weightiest reality in the solar system. And so every other body, everything else in the solar system is affected by that weight. Everything the Earth does and all the other planets do, they do in relationship to the weight of the sun. They're always pulled by its weight. They're pulled by the fact that the heaviest reality in the solar system is the sun. And when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's not the idea of being scared of some cruel cosmic deity, but it's living a life that revolves around a glorious, gracious God, because we cannot help but be moved by the gravity of God. And being moved by the gravity of God means that everything we do orients around, is pulled by, revolves around God. And that's how the Bible talks about it. Proverbs 14, 27 says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Proverbs 16, 6 says, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Isaiah 11 is talking about Jesus and says, he will have a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. The most true human who ever lived delighted in the fear of the Lord. In Acts 9, 31, this is New Testament, chapter 9 starts with Paul's conversion. It ends with Paul boldly preaching Jesus. And the last verse of that chapter says this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up 
and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. When the church walked in the fear of the Lord, it brought peace and comfort, not anxiety and dread. It's a fountain of life. It turns us towards God's love. Jesus delighted in it. The church finds peace and comfort in it. Michael Reeves, who wrote a book on the fear of the Lord, calls it the intensity of the saints' love for God. Not being scared of God, not ignoring God, but fearing God. And the mark of someone who fears the Lord is someone whose life revolves around a glorious, gracious God. And all that we do is in relationship to the gravity of who he is. A home that fears the Lord means the weightiest center of the home, the heaviest reality of the home, the thing that gets most attention in the home is a gracious, glorious God. So Joshua tells the people, your mom and dad didn't do that. Fear the Lord, he said. Live your life revolving around this gracious God as the center of your life. And here's, here's what he's going to go on to say. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt. So that's the gods of their parents, even grandparents. And serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. We end this morning by all of us sitting under that invitation. Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, that's mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. That's where they are right now at the time that this speech was given. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So he speaks to a generation of God's people and says, fear the Lord or Fear what your parents feared, but you can't do both. Your parents feared other gods. Something other than God was the weighty center of the home for your fathers. They adopted the gods of the culture around them. So they adopted the gods of the Egyptians when they were in Egypt. Now they've adopted some of them, the gods of the Amorites, because that's the land that they're in now. And what replaced, please follow me, what replaced the fear of the Lord in these homes was fearing the same thing that the world around them feared. That meant worshiping idols and statues as God. In Joshua, the warning is don't take the gods of the culture you live in into your home. Don't fear the false gods of the Egyptians and the Amorites like your parents did. We don't live in a polytheistic culture like that. So the danger for us is not that we center the home around the gods of a polytheistic culture. The danger is that we center the home around the gods of a secular Western culture because that's where we live. And so I'm hoping we can tease that out around these categories, success and safety and acceptance, and just ask, were these things handled in the home in a way that revered God? Or were these things handled in the home in a way that made them God, like the world around us has made these things God? So please hear this. There's a place for each of these in a home that fears God. There's a wise way to be successful uh, there is wisdom in, in creating a home that's safe, absolutely. There's a wise way to be accepted. But the home that fears God, all of those things are defined by God. And asking, were these things feared in your home? We're not asking, was there a place for them in your home? We're asking, did they take the place of God in your home? Thankfully, there's a host of Proverbs that help us tease all that out. We'll start with success, Proverbs 15, 16, and 17. Uh, it's a striking Two verses. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. That's one side. It's going to be a contrast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. 
Better is a dinner of herbs, that's a poor man's dinner, with love than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Parents are, or at least should be, the first people who shaped your view of what it means to live well, of what it means to pursue something that matters. Parents shape the idea of what's a good future to pursue and what's not. Think of how early on we think in terms of what we're going to be when we what? Grow up. Meaning we're thinking about that when we're not yet grown up. My daughter a few years ago brought home one of those things they fill out at school where it's a fill in the blank and it's favorite color is, fill in the blank, favorite food is. Under what does your dad do for work, she wrote, he yells at church. (laughs) And then she drew a picture of me on stage yelling and drew me with this huge head, which made me sad. But then there was a part where it says, what job do you want when you grow up? And her answer was, I wanna take care of animals. She loves animals. And we read through that together and we laughed and I had some questions for her. And then we got to the part where it said, Um, I want to take care of animals when I grow up. And she looked at me and she said, dad, would that be a good job to have? If I, in other words, if I grew up and I did that for a living, is that an okay life, a good life? Maybe even what she's wondering is if I grew up to do that for a living, is that something that would make you proud? Would that be okay to do? Because in home, mom and dad shape what would and would not be a good future. Mom and dad help define what success is and what success is not. What's the definition that's offered in the world that we live in? If we're thinking about the gods of the Amorites around us, success, according to the world we live in, is achieving a lot, making a lot, acquiring the kinds of things that give us status in our world. Hear the proverb. That's not what the proverb says success is. Better, meaning you are doing well if, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than trouble, than treasure and and trouble with it. A little what? Stuff. A little everything, a little bit of money, a little house, not a lot of status. And here's what it says. The home where God is at the center and there's not a lot else. Better is that home with God than the rich home without God because the one that has God, even if it has less, has so much more. Better is a dinner of herbs. Where do you eat dinner in the home? At the dinner table. And it's saying a poor man's meal with love is better than a rich man's feast without it. In other words, it is better to be hungry with God than full without him because full without him is the worst way to be empty. In the home that fears the Lord, where God is the weighty center and the gravity of God is felt in the home, if I have to make the trade between stuff and God, give me God. Better, this is God-fearing definition of success, a home where our culture's idea of success has replaced God, where success is is feared like God should be. It says, if I have to make the trade, give me the feast without the fear of the Lord. Give me the treasure and I'll buy my way out of the trouble, right? Because in our world, being hungry and having little is the definition of failure in a culture that worships money and stuff. Now, hear me. Proverbs commends hard work. Proverbs does not talk about wealth as an evil in itself. There's a wise way to be rich and a foolish way to be poor. Whenever we talk about wisdom and money in like three years, we'll talk about all that. There is wisdom and integrity in working hard to leave behind resources for your family. There is. 
Uh, there's something that's ingrained in our culture that I think has wisdom in it, and, and it's commendable. It's this idea that parents work really hard so that their children can have a better life than the one that they have. Here's my question, though. Are we defining better life the same way God does? Because in the proverb, the better life is a life with a lot of God, even if that means a little bit of everything else. What kind of home did you grow up in? What ideas of success did you grow up with? Maybe we could ask what kinds of trades were made in the home. A home that fears success in a way that replaces God, it makes the wrong trades. It trades time with family for time at work to a degree that mom and or dad were never around. And if you said, I'd like to see you more, they said, well, we're doing this for you and tried to put money in place where parents should be. Traded pursuit of God, maybe, for some sort of pursuit of the American dream. Was there an idea in the home that the home never had enough and so we always had to get more? Or was there a confidence in the home that Jesus is enough? Another way to ask, which is deeply personal, is what kind of future was held out before you by your parents as a successful future? Proverbs 23, 15, it's this beautiful proverb, goodness. It's a father speaking to a son and just listen about how this dad dreams with his son about his son's future. He says, my son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there's a future and a hope and you will not be cut off. What does dad want for his son? You hear his heart for his son. I just want you to fear the Lord, son. Like the future that I would delight in is when you speak what is right, when your heart is filled with love for the Lord, meaning nothing will make me as proud as when you love and fear the Lord. Notice what's not said. It's not one day, son, if your bank account has more than my bank account, my heart will be full and glad. Not that day that you get into that college, my heart will be glad. Not that day that you're the best kid on that team at that sport, my heart will be glad. Not if you're always an easy kid to parent, my heart will be glad. Hear this. Please hear this. One of the most powerful shaping influences on us is what we were most praised for in our homes. Because it's what our parents praised us for that told us what they most wanted us to be. And the other side of that is their disappointment told us when we're not living up to that vision. Did the praise point you to a life that loves and fears the Lord, or did that praise teach your heart something else is greater than God? I went to a small Bible college in Dallas called Criswell. It was not a traditional college experience at all. Um, at the time, there were no dorms. There, were no, there are no collegiate athletics. The only Greek life were the languages we took. Uh, it was small. It was almost exclusively for people in ministry or preparing for ministry, and it was very, very Christian. It was Christian in the way that, it was, that there were some cheesy things about it, like the coffee shop was called the Holy Grounds Coffee Shop. <laughs> the school had a used clothes store called the Worn Again Shop, which I think is amazing. Um, but one of the things that was really sad, some of the stories there that were sad, um, were the number of students who came there to study the Bible, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, and uh, they came to get a Bible degree and to go into ministry, and in doing so, they disappointed their parents. They, some even cut off from their parents. You know why? Because it didn't fit the home's idea of success. And most of these homes were church-going families. Most of these homes, mom and dad involved in church, 
Dad's a deacon at the church, maybe. And the home said for all of their life, believe in God, follow Jesus, until following Jesus meant I didn't go to the prestigious college, and until it meant I didn't choose a career path that made a lot of money. So you've got these 18, 19, 20-year-olds that discovered in going to Bible college that mom and dad feared something else more than God. What kind of life did you grow up believing you had to live in order to make your parents proud? Like which home would have been a failure in your home growing up? The, the home that had a little but feared the Lord a lot or the home that had a lot, rarely talked about God, didn't live in light of the gospel and attends church a handful of times a year. And if the home feared success in a way that replaced God as the weightiest reality, you likely left that home with a kind of fear that's not the revered kind of fear, but I'm the scared kind of fear. You likely left that home afraid of failure. This sense that it's never enough and what you do is never enough. Now, some of us have that kind of fear of failure and we got it other places in our Our hearts don't need any help making idols of things that are not God. But I do think in light of where we are this morning, it's important for some of us to look and, and, and consider are we doing what we're doing right now? Wherever you are, still in the home, out of the home for decades, are we doing right now what we're doing because we're striving after a future that would make our childhood home proud? And is that the future God most cares about? Is that the one that we most need? Can we believe that a little with Jesus is more than enough? What did your home teach you to fear? Safety. Proverbs 133, I'll read this twice. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Earlier in chapter one, it talks about those who didn't fear the Lord. And then here it says, those who do fear the Lord will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you never hurt. Proverbs talks about pain a lot. It doesn't mean that you live forever. Proverbs talks a lot about death. The fear of the Lord with relation to this passage means I have a security and I have a safety that is bigger than the scary and threatening things in life. I have hope in the Lord that doesn't come out of my life as a constant dread or anxiety over what might happen. As Tim Keller says it, in Jesus, I have meaning in life that suffering can't take away. I need to be really clear here. The home should be a safe place. The home should be a safe place for children. I think this is the point that I'm most fearful of being misunderstood around. The wise home teaches children to avoid danger. The other day, Ayla, my four-year-old, was sitting on the counter watching me make breakfast. The stove is on and I'm making breakfast and she looks and she says, Dad, I'm gonna touch that stove. <laughs> and I didn't say, hey, go for it. We don't fear fire, we fear the Lord, right? <laughs> I said, don't, you better not, do. it'll hurt, right? That's not safe. And, and her mom is here now hearing this story and she's wondering, why'd you let her sit on the counter when the stove was on? And that's fair. The wise home is safe. It protects, it teaches children to look both ways before you cross the street. The wise home finds a really good pediatrician for kids. It has wise rules around devices and internet use. It feeds kids a balanced diet. But where the home revolves around God, all of those things are seen as common grace. This life is a gift, remember? It's worth protecting. It's worth living. It's worth stewarding well. And where safety is absent in the home, that kind of safe presence is absent in the home where it's supposed to be present. It's devastating. Some of the saddest stories, maybe some here in the room, parents who neglect the health and well-being of their children, or even heartbreaking, parents who themselves are not safe for their children. 
Psalm 68.5, God says about himself, father to the fatherless, protector of widows and orphans is God in his holy habitation. God's heart is moved towards those who are neglected and have been discarded. God's heart is moved towards the vulnerable, especially those who should have found safety in their home and didn't, and God offers it. So I am, friends, not talking about that. When I asked, did the home fear safety, I'm talking about the way the culture treats it like a God reveres, fears, worships safety, where the relationship to safety is an unhealthy preoccupation with avoiding all pain and avoiding all danger. There is a confusing thing that's happening in our world right now. We have more reason to feel safe than ever, and we are more afraid than ever. Michael Reeves describes it like this in his book on the fear of the Lord. There's also a book called The Coddling of the American Mind written by two NYU professors that talks about this. It's really helpful. But Reeves says it this way, for all the resources we have to protect us, it has not made us feel safer. If anything, we triple check our locks even more obsessively. The certain safety we long for evades us, leaving us feeling vulnerable, like victims at the slim mercy of everyone and everything else. And therein is an extraordinary paradox for we live more safely than ever before, though we are more prosperous and secure, though we have more safety than almost any other society in history. Safety has become the holy grail of our culture. And like the holy grail, it is something we can never quite reach. Protected like never before, we are skittish and panicky like never before. This has been brewing in our part of the world for decades, this overconfidence that we can avoid all danger and prevent most pain. And it's not made us more confident, it's made us more anxious. And in the home, where this kind of relationship to safety is the center of the home, a preoccupation with avoiding all pain and danger, that home revolves around keeping everyone pain-free. We, we talked about this when we talked anxiety in Matthew 6. If you think about watching a show, if it's like a, a drama or a thriller or something like that, and when you're watching it, even if the scene isn't changing much, if the music in the background changes, and if the music turns ominous, and like suspenseful sounds start to play, the music is saying something's going wrong, then when that music plays, what do you know? Well, your, your favorite character is about to die, right? Or something terrible is just around the corner. The music prepares you that something bad is about to happen. In the home, where there is this kind of obsession with safety, where safety is feared in a way that replaces God, that music plays all the time. Ominous sounds around everything. Parents are anxious about sickness or threat, or harm that might come to their children or to themselves, and that kind of anxiety in a home is contagious. If the ominous sounds played in your home growing up, those sounds have a way of making it into your head, and now in you there is this ever-present sense something bad's gonna happen. Something is right around the corner. There is loss waiting, there is pain waiting, there is danger waiting right around the corner. Hear me. The home that fears the Lord protects children from pain. It does. It teaches children wisdom with regard to danger. It wants children to live fully and flourishing. But there is another side to that in the home that fears the Lord. In the home that fears the Lord, the home also prepares children for pain. Protects them from and prepares them for. I got this language from my mom. She says, parents often spend all their time preparing the path for their child instead of preparing the child for the path. What's on that path that no one can control? What's on the path that none of us can control or prevent? Suffering, 
pain, loss. And so we don't need a path that's free of pain. We can't create that. That's impossible. We need to be people who can endure it. And the home that fears the Lord, their relationship to this is they both protect from and prepare for. This lesson was unavoidable in my home growing up. When I was four years old, my little brother was born with spina bifida. He's been paralyzed from his waist down his entire life. Of all the places that were never meant to exist in God's good world, children's hospitals are at the top of the list. And we grew up in one. We grew up in children's and Scottish Rite down in Dallas. Uh, if you've ever been to a children's hospital, if you've ever been near a home where there is a child with some sort of um, condition like that, ominous sounds play all the time. There is the very real threat of danger and pain and death all the time. I can tell you something though, friends, what was louder in my home growing up than the suspenseful sounds, what was louder than that was a song of hope. We were taught and we watched mom and dad believe that this world is really scary, but we also believe in a really big God. And pain and death are awful. One day they'll go away for good. Death was the weightiest reality in the world until Jesus rose from the dead. And now the weightiest reality in the world is a risen Lord who was and is and is to come. And he doesn't promise safety or ease to those who follow him, but he does promise resurrection and vindication and a kingdom that lasts forever and ever. I was so encouraged yesterday. I got to spend the morning with our junior high and high school students at, at Focus. I wasn't there as a pastor or preacher. I was just there as a dad. And yesterday's session was on 1 Peter 4. And in 1 Peter 4, it says, don't be surprised when you suffer. Rejoice that you share in the suffering of Christ. And my heart was full at the thought of 170 of our students being prepared for the path, uh, following Jesus, which for 170 will mean suffering. It will mean pain. They were not there sold the lie that God makes life easier. And if you love him, all your dreams will come true. They are there being told the truth that following him is costly and he's worth every bit of it. Not only that, but he is able to comfort you in the worst parts of it. In your home growing up, was there any sense that God was greater than death? That Jesus is present in pain? Did the home only try and protect you from, or did it protect you from and prepare you for? Maybe one way to say it is this, the music that played in the home, was it the music of you better watch out, or was it playing a song of hope that said no matter what with Jesus, you're gonna be okay? You're gonna be okay? Acceptance. Be brief here, I'm out of time. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Colossians 3, 22. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. How is acceptance handled in your home? We all wanna belong. We all have a human need to be loved and accepted. And there are two approaches to that in the book of Proverbs. There's the fear of the Lord approach to acceptance, and then there's the fear of man approach. And the fear of man approach is how the world around us handles acceptance. The fear of the Lord seeks to find acceptance in God, and it finds it. The fear of man seeks and always searches for the approval of others, what Colossians calls people pleasing. Here's the difference. In the home that fears the Lord, children are taught to live from a place of acceptance, in the home that fears man, children are taught to live for acceptance. In the, children that fear, in the home that fears the Lord, children are taught to live from acceptance. First of all, they are accepted simply because they're a child. They're someone's child. 
Love is unconditionally given simply by virtue of being a child to a parent. If the question is, what does it take for you to love me, mom and dad? The answer is you being mine, and that was true the moment you were conceived. Second, the home that fears the Lord teaches kids to live from a place of acceptance that we find in and only in God through Christ. Proverbs 16, 6, by steadfast love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. You know what the greatest joy is for a parent who fears the Lord? The greatest joy they can have is when their biological child becomes their spiritual sibling and they are accepted and loved and their identity is in Jesus because of his broken body and shed blood. The opposite of that is a home that fears man, that worships the gods around us, tries to find acceptance through people pleasing, which is a target that's always moving. In the home that fears man, children are led to live for acceptance. What that means is we are shaped or influenced to leave the home and the loudest voice in our head is the voice of a critic. Critical of our achievement, critical of our appearance, critical of how much we are not like the people that we think have already gained the acceptance that we want. And many of us picked up that voice other places. Our hearts do a good job of magnifying shame's voice regardless of the home we grew up in. But with where we are this morning, it's a good time to ask what message of acceptance did you leave the home believing? Was it something you lived from or was it something that you lived for? And maybe we all have a bit of a critic's voice. I'm asking, does the critic's voice that you hear sound like mom or dad? If so, is it because the home treated acceptance as something that was always on the side of you doing better, always on the other side of you trying harder? In the home that fears man, it lives for acceptance. It means you're always trying to get it or you believe you're one failure away from losing it once you have it. What did the home revolve around, friends? Got to bring this to a close. Was uh, success or safety or acceptance feared in a way that replaced God? Or was God the weighty center of the home? And wherever you fall on that, however you answer that, the wise look back with curiosity and with honesty and with humility to wonder if that's coming out of my life in some way. Now, Joshua twenty four fifteen, he says, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the invitation this morning. Look, I don't know how this lands. Maybe your story was so absent of any conception of home. You can't see yourself in any of this. And if that's you, I'm so sorry, my friend. Maybe I missed a piece in your story that would have been really helpful. Maybe you look and you say, look, I fear success and I fear safety and I fear acceptance as God, even though I grew up in a home that feared God. Wherever it lands, the invitation for all of us is the same. What matters most for all of us are the hearts we have, not the homes we were raised in. And here's the invitation. Wherever you're from, wherever you are, choose this day who you will serve. Fear the Lord. And he is the God who won't fail you like the gods around us. He is the God who is enough even when there's just a little. He is the God who will not only deliver us from death, but he suffers with us and he gives even our pain a purpose. He's the God who is not our critic, but he stands forever as our priest, our advocate, declaring intercession over us. He accepts us, he loves us, he sees us, and he welcomes us by his blood in his name. Choose this day who you'll serve. My great prayer for us, church, and my great joy 
is knowing that we, Citizens Church, are a church full of people whose hearts declare and whose lives long to live into that last phrase, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, we love you. Make it so. Make it so, God. Goodness, we live in a world that sells false gods as strong gods only to leave us terrified when we discover over and again how frail those gods are. You and you alone are a strong God, Father, Son, and Spirit who was and is and is to come. So we need you. I pray, God, that we would be a people who fear you, whose lives are forever revolving around you, living in the glorious gravity of your greatness and grace, oh God. I, I just think this is really important work, God. It doesn't matter what I think. I believe, God, because of what we know about you and what you say in your word, that this is really important work, that we would look back, God, that we would uh, resist the lie that there's nothing to discover in looking back at the past, and that, God, that we would avoid the lie that we are who we are because of who our homes determined us to be. Make space, Holy Spirit, in our hearts for the gospel to bring powerful transformation. That it would, uh, Lord, begin to loosen our grip around the things that we fear that will fail us, that our hands might hold more tightly to the God who's already holding us and will never let us go. We love you. We thank you. Amen.